0: Fixing a coronary blockade without opening the chest is the attractive choice for patients and their families. No surprise, percutaneous coronary intervention or PCI has been growing steadily since the 1980s. Could you guess how many coronary interventional procedures are done worldwide? I'll leave you a second to think. Four million PCIs are performed annually around the globe. A market size of more than 10 billion dollars so what's the best practice in pci what's the best access what are the best gadgets what's the best adjunctive pharmacotherapy let's see what does the acc aha recent guideline recommend hello and welcome i'm hussein hishmat i'm a professor of cardiology and an interventional cardiologist. Welcome to my podcast. In this episode, I'll try to answer 10 essential questions on the best practices of contemporary PCI from the latest ACC AHA guideline. Question number one, which vascular axis Based on the results of several trials and corresponding meta-analysis, radial axis is preferred to femoral axis, to reduce bleeding, vascular complications, and even mortality in acute coronary syndromes. That's why radial axis gets class 1A for acute coronary syndromes. However, in chronic stable disease, radial axis reduces bleeding but does not reduce mortality. It's still associated with better patient's convenience and earlier discharge, so it's recommended anyway, whether in acute coronary syndromes or in chronic stable disease. Question number 2. How to assess coronary lesions? We have three basic tools, angiography, physiology and intracoronary imaging. Starting by angiography, this is how we delineate the lumen of the coronary artery. Angiography gives us lesion severity as expressed by the percent stenosis, it also gives us very good information regarding the lesion morphology and the extent of the disease, and these are all anatomical features. The angiographic variables can be turned into more objective by using the syntax score. The higher the score, the more extensive the disease. Using the score to guide revascularization, however, is class 2b because of the inter-observer variability in its calculation and the lack of representation of clinical variables in the score. Deciding conclusively which lesion is significant and needs to be treated sometimes can be tricky. In many situations we encounter intermediate severity lesions. In this situation, physiologic assessment is key. Physiologic assessment measures the pressure drop across the lesion the fraction of floor reserve and this gets class 1a for assessing intermediate severity lesions and the cutoff for a significant lesion is less than 0.80 for the FFR which is the hyperemic index and the cutoff is 0.89 for the instantaneous ratio the non-hyperemic index Cross sectional anatomical imaging intracoronary imaging by intravascular ultrasound to measure the cross sectional area gets class two A recommendation for intermediate left main stenosis. The cutoff for a significant stenosis in the left main coronary artery is a minimal lumen area less than six millimeters square and less than four point five millimeters square in patients of Asian origin. Question number 3. Which stent should we implant in the patient? Of course, drug eluting stents get class 1a recommendation compared to bare metal stents in order to reduce restenosis, stent thrombosis and myocardial infarction. After several iterations and generations of drug eluting stents, now we have a ranking of stents from the safer to the less safe. The safest are the durable polymer drug eluting stents, followed by the biodegradable polymer drug eluting stents, and the least safe are the bare metal stents. Bare metal stents currently do not confer any advantage apart from the lower cost, and they may very well disappear in the coming few years. Question number 4. What's the role of intracoronary imaging to guide percutaneous intervention? Intravascular ultrasound gets class 2A for left main, complex interventions, and for stent failure. Optical coherence tomography also gets class 2A, except in osteo-left main lesions, where the lesion could not be assessed properly by OCT because of the disengaged guiding catheter. We think that there is a big future for these technologies. More and more studies are coming that show survival advantage for IVUS, and I expect that their utilization is going to expand more in the future. Question number 5. Should we still do thrombus aspiration for Thrombus containing lesions in ST elevation, myocardial infarction. In fact, studies with aspiration thrombectomy compared to routine stenting did not show improvement in any meaningful endpoint. No reduction in infarct size, no improvement in mortality, reinfarction, stent thrombosis, revascularization, cardiogenic shock, or heart failure. That's why routine thrombus aspiration is harmful, class 3 in the guidelines. Okay, what about those patients who have a high thrombus burden? In this particular group of patients, thrombus aspiration was associated with a small reduction of mortality, but this came at the cost of a small increased rate of stroke. For this reason, we need additional dedicated studies focusing only on patients with high thrombus burden, but it seems that this technology is falling out of our preference. Question number six. Where do hardcore calcium debulking tools currently stand? Calcium, if it is thick or circumferential, will hinder stent delivery and stent expansion. Rotablation with a high-speed rotating diamond burr excavates the calcium and allows for better stent delivery and better stent expansion. It gets class 2a in the guidelines just to improve procedural success in fibrotic and calcific lesions, and it is superior to cutting and scoring balloons for this indication. Other more recent gadgets, the orbital atherectomy, the intravascular lithotripsy, the laser and other balloon atherectomies, they all get class 2b because of the smaller Sized trials again, a big future for these devices as PCI is getting more complex. However, we still need trials to show us improved hard endpoints like mortality, reinfarction, stent failure, not just procedural success. Question number seven What to do with degenerated saphenous vein grafts? Saphenous vein grafts are the signed souvenirs given by surgeons to the interventionists. Dealing with these degenerate souvenirs brings to the mind friable material, distal embolization, nori flow, high restenosis rate, failure of drug-eluting stents. Gu- guidelines recommend embolic protection as class 2a, and they recommend treatment of the native vessel when feasible which is usually more rewarding down the line than treating a degenerated saphenous vein graft. PCI for chronic saphenous vein graft occlusion is class three unless it's being used as a conduit for retrograde CTO for the sake of the native coronary. Question number eight. Chronic total occlusions, CTO. This is where all the PCI magic happens retrograde intervention, surfing the collaterals, the sectionary entry. Unfortunately, all of these fancy tools and techniques did not reflect on improving survival or improving ejection fraction. Even in refractory angina, CTO PCI in this guidelines gets class 2B, and the text refers to uncertain benefits. Although the Euro CTO Multicenter and demise trial demonstrated a greater reduction in angina frequency and improved quality of life with PCI of a CTO than medical therapy. There was a larger trial, the decision CTO trial, that did not demonstrate any difference in symptoms or clinical outcomes with CTO PCI. We hope that future trials with more definitive endpoints may change the current landscape of this high tech procedure. Question number 9. Is mechanical hemodynamic support useful? Well, this is another territory for cutting-edge tools balloon pump, impella, ECMO and tandem heart. In these guidelines the devices got class 2b to prevent hemodynamic compromise during PCI for selected high-risk patients. Despite the fact that the trials were not conclusive in determining benefit of these devices for hard endpoints, Hemodynamic support in select patients during complex PCI remains an intuitive and logical approach. Doing PCI for multivessel disease, left main disease, or the last patent vessel, or severe LV dysfunction or cardiogenic shock with mechanical circulatory support, in practice gives safety to the operators and to the patients. We are still waiting for more trials to show us the positive impact of these mechanical circulatory support devices on hard endpoints. Question number 10 Which adjunctive pharmacotherapy is essential for PCI? Of course, dual antiplated therapy, DAPT, is key to prevent stem thrombosis and other thrombotic events. If a choice is to be made between PCI and cabbage, and dual antiplatelet therapy is not feasible, or accessible, or tolerable, then cabbage is reasonable in preference to PCI, considering the poor outcome after stent thrombosis. Aspirin is the first antiplatelet, it's always there. The other antiplatelet is one of the three, Ticagrelor, Clopidogrel, or prasugrel. In acute coronary syndromes, Ticagrelor and prasugrel are preferred to Clopidogrel, they get class 2A, whereas in stable ischemic heart disease, Clopidogrel still holds strong and is class 1A. In PCI, within 24 hours after thrombolytic therapy, Clopidogrel is class 1, whereas in the same patients after thrombolytic therapy who are younger than 75 years, Ticagrelor may be a reasonable alternative to Clopidogrel to reduce ischemic events based on the TREAT study, and it gets a class 2b recommendation. Intravenous glycoprotein 2b3a blockers were used widely in the past, and they are still reasonable to improve procedural success in patients with ACS undergoing PCI who have a large thrombus burden, noriflow, or slow flow, and in this situation, they get a class 2a recommendation. However, in patients with stable ischemic heart disease, using these agents is mostly harmful and it gets class 3 in the guidelines. The new kid on the block is Kangri Lore, and this is an intravenous antiplatelet agent that gets a class 2b recommendation in the guideline. When can we use this agent? in patients who are naive to P2Y12 inhibitors. This, in this situation, cangrelor can be effective in preventing stent thrombosis and may be considered in patients who have not been pre-treated with a P2Y12 inhibitor, in patients whose absorption of oral medications may be inhibited, or in patients who are unable to take oral medications. So there might be a future for cangrelor in PCI. Last but not least, unfractionated heparin, which is the standard anticoagulant to be given during PCI, titrated to a target activated clotting time that ranges between 200 up to 350 based on the kit we are using and based whether we're using concomitant 2b3a blockers or not. In patients who have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or undergoing PCI, bivalirudin should be used and replaces unfractionated heparin in this situation to avoid thrombotic complications. One caveat to consider, in patients who are being treated with enoxaparin low molecular weight heparin for acute coronary syndromes, the use of intravenous enoxaparin should be considered at the time of PCI to reduce ischemic events and we should avoid switching from a low molecular weight heparin to unfractionated heparin during PCI because this increases bleeding. Thank you for listening. I hope we had a quick and comprehensive review of essential PCI practices from the latest ACC AHA guidelines. If you like the content, please follow the podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Enable notifications for the coming episodes and see you soon.